0: Hey, welcome to In The Shift, a podcast for when life and faith go off script. My name is Michael Frost. And here we are. I am excited. This is my excited voice. This is an introvert's excited voice. I'm excited to be um, back bringing you another episode of In The Shift. We have been on a bit of a hiatus, an unplanned hiatus. Uh, 2020 has been a hell of a year, hasn't it? And, um, and we're, you know, I'm in New Zealand, as, as you will know. And uh, many of you are too, and it's it's a very fortunate place to be in the world right now. It's kind of surreal to be living a relatively normal existence at the moment, while the rest of the world seems uh, to just be struggling under the weight of the COVID pandemic. Um, For those of you who are in other parts of the world and still right in the midst of it, uh, my empathy and heart goes out to you, and I hope you're traveling okay and getting by. And uh, and and managing to make your way through. Um, I am, as I say, it was an unplanned hiatus for, in the shift over the last few months. But but really, what happened? And I spoke in the last episode about how it was in the middle of lockdown here, and I was finding it challenging. And really, I've been dealing, I suppose, with the aftermath of that. And and one of the things I've been reflecting on a lot is my own the the narrative of of my own life. And the way I see myself, I think I, I've seen myself historically as someone who copes very well with complicated and stressful situations. And so I was taken by surprise somewhat, the degree to which I found uh, lockdown in its various forms challenging and difficult uh, and ultimately kind of exhausting. And so I came out of lockdown and kind of scrambling back into regular life, but it has taken me a long time to feel like I'm getting... Um, to a point where I'm sort of managing again so I guess that's uh that's where I'm up to now and that's why I'm able to to get back into this I didn't want to bring you in the shift podcast episodes um in a space where I just didn't feel that I had the the life resource energy to do them justice but um here we are we're back and I'm happy about that um we've been we started the year talking about divine intervention started of the year feels like maybe 15 years ago but it was in fact this year that uh I decided to start a series on divine intervention in this uh, in the podcast and uh, and the purpose has been to really explore uh the question of god's relationship with the world and with us how do we think about god how we do how do we think about god in relation to the world does god interact with us or not does god interact with the world or not and we've been doing this because, for many people, especially those who have been going through some kind of rethinking or deconstruction or whatever you want to call it, uh, it's it's these questions. It's where the rubber meets the road, you know. As we pull apart some of our old ideas about God, what do we put back together again? Is there something to put back together again? Are there ways of thinking about God that are plausible, that are helpful, that aren't toxic, that don't take us into places that are that are unhealthy, uh, and. And that help us to make sense of our reality rather than to deny it. Um, And and so that's what we've been exploring. And trying to move away from this this view of God as outside of the system somewhere, breaking in and doing supernatural things, and instead trying to explore alternatives to that view. And so this episode is a continuation of that conversation. And uh, I actually recorded this conversation a couple of months back during lockdown here in New Zealand. Um, and it's a conversation with Dr. Sarah Lane Ritchie, who is a North American, who is based in Scotland at the University of Edinburgh, and has done a lot of work and research on, uh, what we call divine action, which is thinking about how God relates to the world and acts in the world, and does God act in the world, and if so, how do we make sense of that? And so this is a, a brilliant conversation, um, I've left... Pretty much the whole conversation in this episode, so it's a bit longer than normal. But I wanted to do that because there's so much in here. Um, it might take a couple of listens, even because there's just there's so much going on in this conversation that I think is is helpful and is worth reflecting on. Uh, she does a great job of explaining the terms she uses as she goes, so hang on for the ride in that respect. And so we talk about uh, her own journey. We talk about the nature of experience. What do we do with those experiences of God that that we don't know what to do with anymore? Uh, what do we? how do we think about God's relationship to the world, some ways of thinking about that. Uh, we even talk about psychedelics and, uh, and the role they might or could play in spiritual experience. Uh, so it's a wide-ranging conversation. We cover a bunch of stuff, and I think it's going to be really helpful to you. So this is episode 35 of In The Shift. Let's get into it. Well, today on the podcast, I have Dr. Sarah Lane Ritchie. Sarah is a lecturer in theology and science at the University of Edinburgh and the author of the book Divine Action and the Human Mind. She works at the intersection of theology and the sciences, and in particular in relation to questions surrounding the human mind, the relationship between God and the physical world, the development of religious belief, and the complex ways in which scientific research can play a role in constructive theological scholarship so thanks so much for joining me Sarah I really appreciate it
1: no thank you Michael I'm delighted to be here and to have some human contact from across <laughs> the world in the middle of lockdown here in the UK
0: yes you're so you're in Scotland
1: I'm in Scotland and
0: locked down I assume
1: and locked down we are fully locked down and we are serious about it here
0: <laughs> so. yeah we are serious here also uh the strategy yeah. is elimination apparently yeah mm-hmm. so
1: mm-hmm.
0: um well thanks as I say for for joining me um I thought it might be interesting to to start off whether you'd be happy to give us a little background to your own journey of how you came into the arena of science and theology. Did you grow up with a particularly religious experience or, or background? Um, mm-hmm. How did you stumble into or intentionally walk into science and theology and and has that always been a straightforward conversation for you or or has it had yeah. some tensions along the way? <laughs>
1: Uh, yes, so never straightforward, always many complexities. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, I did come from a very um, religious background of uh, various theological traditions sort of mixing and melding into into um, a sort of one journey. Um, I was born in Northern Michigan, a very rural part of the um, of Northern Michigan in the US. And I uh, was actually born into a Southern Baptist church, of all things. So spent my early childhood in a Southern Baptist church, which was a very uh, conservative. And um, I would actually call that particular congregation a, a fundamentalist congregation. Um, and I was surrounded by extremely loving people and uh, felt it was a very close uh, environment to grow up in and a lot of love and um a lot of scripture and Bible memorization, that sort of thing. Um, But I was never, it was never an easy fit for me. Um, I started sort of asking difficult questions at a very young age. And in addition to sort of the the, um, questions that I would call more intellectual or cognitive that became more pressing for me as I grew older, um, I was also, I also from a very young age experienced a sort of experiential dissonance, I think, when I would compare myself and my own experience of God to the experiences of other people around me. And um, in short, I never experienced the sort of um, the presence of God in quite the same way that other people seem to very easily. And so the um, sort of the immediacy of God to me never felt like a, uh, an experienced reality. And um, so it was probably not surprising that I, I, I gravitated in a, in a sort of decidedly charismatic direction in my early teen years. Um, I was very drawn to the immersive sort of aesthetics of the worship experiences that they offered and also sort of the, 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 the intensely um, passionate, like the passionate sort of quality of the um, experiences of people in that tradition. Uh, And so I think when I was about 13, 14, 15, um, I was, I sort of hit what I would call like my passionate peak. <laughs> of Christian Christian engagement, where I I felt I, I did start feeling the experience of uh, feeling the presence of God in a way that, for me, gripped my whole being. I was always a pretty intense kid. I was never I was always asking kind of like the big questions about God and life and purpose and meaning, like why are we here? Um, what you know? I was always uh, challenging sort of the foundations of the rather simplistic notions of faith that I would get from the people around me. And, um, had scientific questions about God from a very young age. Like I, I, I remember being obsessed with, uh, young earth creationist theories. That was actually probably my first real introduction. Well, my first introduction to what I considered to be real science was through like science, like a few young earth creationist scientists um, and I became like just fascinated by what they were doing, and now I have a different take on that. But at the at the time, when I was like nine or ten years old, um, the, that sort of um, that sort of perspective on the science and God like relationship was um, compelling for me. Uh, when I was uh, 15, my family moved overseas, where I spent the rest of my um, teen years, and we were living in Pakistan and Bangladesh. Um, And that moves kind of signaled a a, a shift in my existentialist experience, I'll call it. And um, I really started, I I really stopped feeling, feeling uh, experiencing God in any sort of uh, meaningful way. And it was accompanied by um, my mother dying. She, uh, she, she was diagnosed with stage four cancer when I was 16 and died three months later. Right. Uh, We were living in Bangladesh at the moment Um, and we went back to Bangladesh as soon as the funeral was over, essentially. And um, those were, those were very dark years for me. I Mm. had been struggling with my faith and just sort of with being a human in the world. Um, Well, before my mother was diagnosed um, with cancer, but after she died, uh, things just became very dark for me. And um, it was a very scarring time. I think it was a sort of loss of God that's hard to get over in mm-hmm. a lot of ways. And it was much more experiential at that point than cognitive. Um, but it definitely signaled a departure point for me where mm-hmm. the sort of easy Christianity of my childhood no longer um, was just no longer a, an option for me. It was not something I had experiential access to. Yeah. Uh, and so I could give you all the right answers theologically, what I consider to be right answers. Um, but they just were not a felt reality for me and so just sort of the bottom dropped out of my world mm-hmm. um I had been raised to think that all of life's meaning and purpose was wrapped up in a theological package and if I couldn't find God in the church then there just was no reason to get out of bed in the morning yeah and so I really struggled with various like I was extremely depressed for years and, um, just really just very much struggled to, to, to find a new way to be in the world. In my university years, I was uh, back in Michigan in a free Methodist university, Um, and it was, it was quite evangelical in flavor, but it was a different sort of evangelicalism than I had been exposed to in the more fundamentalist circles of my early childhood. And I rediscovered in that particular community, um, a warmth and an energy and a a sort of a vibrancy of, um, uh, intellectually engaged faith that was really encouraging for me. And, um, I I sort of started to get my feet under me again, um, it wasn't in an environment that I would probably be able to to, to um, be completely open in today because of the nature of my theological kind of trajectory yeah. since then. But at that point in my life, it was a wonderful, it, it was just a very healing and wonderful experience. Mm. Um, I was encouraged by several of my professors at university to pursue um, a Master of Divinity at Princeton Theological Seminary in New Jersey, which is a PCUSA, a Presbyterian um, uh, seminary. Um, and I, um, at that point had, I said, spent most, I spent, I think, th- I believe three years, um, at university studying, uh, the sciences in one way or another. So I started out in biology and psychology, double majoring in bio and psych. I was kind of on a pre-med track for a couple of years. And then I went more in the psychological direction. And, um, it was only at the, in, in my like third and fourth year that I, Um, had taken so many, uh, philosophy and religion classes just because I wanted to, that my uh, professors were essentially like, this is something that you love. You should just pursue it. Right. Um, and, uh, so I, 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 sort of, I shifted the focus from the sciences to, to philosophy and religion at the very end of my uh, university career, went on to, um, Princeton Seminary. But there I was, um, I was extremely fortunate to be working with, um, the chair the science and religion chair there, uh, Benzel van Heistein, uh, in my uh, master of divinity years, as well as, um, someone uh, named Robert Dykstra, who was doing pastoral theology, which is essentially psychological sciences and theology. and. Um, I just, I did more science and religion and science and theology work at Princeton than any in any any other area. I mean, I used to joke that I don't think I read a, f- a full volume of Bart the entire time I was at Princeton, which is like if anyone knows Princeton, it's like unheard of that you could manage that. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, it was sort of sort of a tragedy for them that they they didn't uh, indoctrinate me with too much Bartyan uh, theology. Uh, nothing wrong <laughs> with Bart, of course. Um, and then after after my uh, MDiv, I I knew that I, went, I wanted to do a PhD, but I was not clear on whether or not. Um, that PhD should be done in science and religion or the or pastoral theology. is basically psychology and theology. Um, I knew I wanted to be engaged with the sciences in one way or another, but I didn't know what particular form it should take. Uh, I spent a year doing other things. I worked in Hong Kong for a while in a church and um, in a dude ranch and <laughs> – um, And so that was just for a year and I applied to master's programs, um, a master pro master's program in, uh, in here in Scotland at the university of Edinburgh where I am now. And so I ended up deciding just take a year, do a one year master's in science and religion and see if that was going to be the fit a a good fit for me. Uh, came over here, loved it, fell in love with the material and uh, knew I wanted to pursue it. And so went on to do a PhD in science and religion with focus on, um, divine action and the human mind. So my, my area is in um, anything to do with theology and God and and, and the human uh, brain slash mind um, and disembodied embodied experience of God more broadly Um sort of ground up theologies. Um, and yeah, so I'm still here.
0: Yeah. yeah. Great. Thank you. Um, when you speak of, you know, your own experience of the kind of the quite potent experience of God, through to the loss of that experience, I think that's, that's probably something that is familiar to people or to, to, to many people um, where there's this quite binary sense of how we, of how we think about God where mm-hmm. either God is this one that we're able to experience in these quite um, particularly kind of acute ways, noticeable ways, tangible ways, uh, and this must be God present in our lives or that was all kind of imaginary or um, atmosphere or <laughs> whatever else we might want to call it. And now I realize that perhaps none of that was real and because mm-hmm. of my own experiences that now tell me otherwise. Do you think that's – is that in a sense that kind of binary um, place that we often find ourselves in where the, ch- the choice seems to be either all all or nothing in terms of either I've got this God who's directly close to me mm-hmm. or, or I've got nothing? Do you think that's a, a – uh, a challenge that arises from our, our view of how God kind of relates to the world, of, of how God relates to us. Why do you think we so often land in that binary place?
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, so, I mean, in some ways, this is the classic compatibilism versus incompatibilism discussion. Um, so the sort of intuitive human experience is that either there has to be, either my experiences of God are in, like truly supernatural. Either I am actually encountering God Um, and it is a divine other that is, um, meeting me in some way, um, or there is a natural explanation for it, or there is, this is just neural firings in my brain. And I was um, conditioned by my childhood and, and background and culture to have particularly sorts of intense, um, uh, emotional experiences, which my culture sort of dictated that I would then interpret as an experience of God. Yeah. Um, so that is what we would call an incompatibilist position, where we have to choose. Um, theologically and within science and religion circles, there's been a real move away from that. But it is in it is very it is extremely counterintuitive, um, and I ex- I experience this counterintuitive um, the na- nature of it as well. Even now, um, where I. I I find the most compelling theological visions on offer um, to be those that do not force one to choose between a theological explanation for something. So like God is meeting me in this moment um, or a scientific explanation. My brain is firing in a particular way and it's measurable on an fMRI Mm -hmm. scan. Um, So that is what we would call the compatibilist position that we don't have to choose. Um, And it's, Theologically, a compelling one, and I think that there are plenty of the, uh, historical traditional resources in various traditions to support that theologically. Uh, and it's certainly, um, I think, the only defensible really position um, for those who are rigorously engaged with the sciences. Though, of course, some of my philosophical theologian friends would disagree and say that supernaturalism is a perfectly defensible um, position and incompatil- incompatibilism is defensible. Um, but For me, um, any, the, the fullest explanation of God's engagement with us will have to embrace, um, the, the physicality of our experience as humans. This part is what it means to be us is to Mm be, um, uh, um, we are physical beings and, um, (laughs) <laughs> if I had one hill to die on, one one battle to fight, it would probably be um, a strong desire to. Um, it would be something from my strong desire to to elevate what we consider to be merely physical, mm-hmm. um, and to to recognize this this sort of the, the potentialities of divine engagement with matter itself, um, and 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 so moving us away from a position where we have to choose between God and the brain, for example.
0: Right. So it it seems that one of the ways in which perhaps this this topic of god's engagement with us can can be framed is that if if we struggle with the kind of god engages with matter side of things because then that brings up all sorts of questions about how god actually engages with matter what does that actually mean um mm-hmm. then we can say well as human beings we've we've got a an immaterial part to us whether it be our what we call our spirit or soul or or even mm-hmm. um just to say, our mind—that uh, our mind, mm-hmm. in some way, has uh, our consciousness emerges and, and becomes greater than just the physicality of of the brain, and becomes this immaterial mm-hmm. thing, and therefore God can interact with us there because that's not involving a disruption or a, 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 an engagement with matter yeah. itself, right? That's hard to then right. explain. Um, so, so what what what's going on there? I guess in, in framing it up that way, and, and where do you sit in relation to? to that way of trying to understand how God might relate to us.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So for centuries now, Christians have been trying to come to grips with what we would call the divine action problem. It hasn't always been framed using the word the divine action problem, but it's it's essentially this idea of like how we can have an apparently explicable natural world, um, and also maintain a belief or a faith in a God that interacts with that world in one way or another. And a lot of times, this is um so this is this this is uh, will surround discussions of um. Miracles, or God, like God doing things in the physical world, like mm. did God actually part the Red Sea, or you know, is there a physical resurrection of Jesus? This sort of thing. Um, um, are people physically healed when when somebody prays for them? That 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 kind of um, like divine, what we would call divine intervention within mm-hmm. nature. And and it's been a really thorny issue for people to deal with, um, because after the Enlightenment, we, we started to develop a very particular mechanistic kind of understanding of the natural world, and it became harder and harder to identify exactly how... Um, we could affirm that the, that the natural world in, did indeed seem to be operating a sor- according to some sort of regularity. Um, a lot of people call this like laws of nature, but there are different ways of understanding that regularity uh, that are, that doesn't involve prescriptive laws of nature that can never be broken. But at the very least, the natural world does seem to be relatively predictable and, at, at a micro level and to be operating according to physical processes that are extremely regular. Um, in one way or another. And so what we have seen theologically is a decided move away from what we would call supernaturalism, or is it this idea that God directly intervenes in nature, because it would seem to sort of undermine the very physical processes that God has apparently created in the first place. Right. And so there began to be theological and scientific tensions for people wanting to affirm divine involvement with creation. And what we see is that there has been a, a, a real move towards the interiorization of divine action conversation. So instead of like focusing on divine action in the physical world, God acting in the physical world, a lot of times people want to say, well, I don't know if a miracle actually occurred out there, but I know that God is interacting with me on a daily basis. And there's something about the human mind consciousness, uh, what some people would call a soul, an immaterial soul, that seems to be inexplicable in terms of current um contemporary scientific knowledge and there seems to be a part of the human person that defies the laws of nature that is is not bound by physicality and so what people um very intuitively do is think that they that what what, what makes them them their soul, their soul their mind their consciousness like there's something about them that the the core of who they are is not physical. So they will say, yes, 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 I'm in a body. I'm in a physical body, but I myself am more than my body. There's something about me that is um, inherently spiritual. I can survive beyond the death of my body. And God interacts with me um, as spirit. And so there is nothing, no physical laws are being broken when God is interacting with me at the level of my mind or soul or consciousness because that core of who I am is not encapsulated in my, my brain or my body. And um, so there has been a real need to hang on to this, um, a felt need to hang on to some sort of dualism, some sort of understanding of a a strict distinction between the brain and the mind, uh, Mm. between the brain and the soul, between the body and the mind. And um, that, that has served a sort of theological purpose for people who find it difficult to affirm ongoing divine engagement with the natural world. Mm
0: right and and part of those difficulties, other than being, I guess, from the scientific perspective, being how do mm-hmm. we how do we explain this, from the intuitive on the ground perspective, how mm-hmm. do I explain the lack of engagement or the, 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 the miracle that did not take place? Um, and so mm-hmm. trying mm-hmm. to come up with some way that I can accept that maybe those things don't happen but still hold on to an okay. engagement with God um, exactly yeah. that's actually
1: an, an extremely important point that many people um, that many theologians even um, forget um, is that this is not just a, this is not just a debate about the science mm. of, of of the of the matter. Um, or the science of matter, um, it's it's really also drawing on this hugely um, challenging conversation around the problem of evil, yeah. um, around natural suffering and pain, around um, this recognition that if God can act whenever God wants in the physical world, um, then we have some real we have some real problems. We have some real theological um, questions, namely involving the question of. Why does God not act just a little bit more? Mm. Like, why does God not prevent just a tiny bit of suffering? Why doesn't God save that one child? Right? We all, yes, we could probably all accept that tsunamis will happen, hurricanes will happen. But why couldn't God spare that one child, right? right. Um, it, and so there's this question of, does a world really require so much gratuitous suffering and pain mm. and destruction? Mm. Uh, why does God not act if God can act? And so this is actually um, a really difficult problem that has actually moved a lot of theologians um out of the faith altogether, yeah. and into some sort of like religious naturalism, or some um, some sort of uh, philosophical position that doesn't affirm uh, theism, essentially. Um, and then you have some theologians who are trying to um, the, the, the theologians that I engage the most closely with are those that want to affirm a theism, but affirming a God that uh, for that we could even say can't really intervene in nature because that's not the way that the divine being is either because of god's nature or because of the the sort of metaphysical structure of reality because like the natural world itself um defies a strict sort of interventionist framework that we often have where god just steps in from the outside and Mm. zaps a a neuron or a cell or something sure
0: yeah i mean i think the the solution to kind of the the problem of so I don't think it's much of a solution, but it was the solution. Perhaps mm-hmm. in my in my uh, zealous, uh, the peak of what did you call it? The 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 peak of your passion for uh, the yeah. Lord or something? Passion, you know, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. My, my Pentecostal passion peak was a, a triple P, which makes it even more powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, was that that if I could essentially drum up enough, that what the what the world was waiting for was for people like me to drum up enough faith to spur all of this intervention into into, yep. into action, you know. Um, yep. Yep. And I guess that's a way of trying to make sense of it, yep. that, that somehow, yes, this is the reality, but we can, if we just get fervent enough, yep. are able to overcome that and, and spur God into action. Now that in itself creates a whole new set of problems mm-hmm. in relation to God as well, I think, mm-hmm. but, um, yeah,
1: you know. Yeah, the the one, yeah, so that is really interesting because I was also very, I was, I was very much exposed to that line of thinking as well, that it's not so much that we have to explain why God doesn't things by basically developing a complex theodicy, which is sort of, of you know, a, a way to get God off the hook, as it were, mm. um, of the, the problem of evil, but it's rather a question of, well, why are we as Christians not engaging um in spiritual warfare or sort of like, why are we not um, sort of praying or or, or, or changing the world into a place where um, more obvious divine intervention is occurring. Right. So the kind of, it's not mm-hmm. on getting God, the emphasis is not on getting God off the hook, but on, 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 on uh, equipping Christians to go out and change the world and sort of bring in a new um, era where God is acting more directly. Yeah. So that is a, it's a very compelling sort of alternative. Um and one which, um, one which can actually be um, sort of moderated a bit. And you can have, um, uh, there are theologians who want to hang on to the core of that. So the core of what we would call participatory ontology. Mm. A view of the, of the world where human and, and actually all natural participation in God is a reality that is not static. Right? So right. there is a way to sort of affirm uh, that God does respond to humans without making it quite so binary as perhaps the... Um, the, the sort of rather shallow kind of framework that I, am, that I was exposed to um, in my teen years um, in Pentecostal circles. There are uh, much thicker uh, ways of understanding that ontology, so that basically the, 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 the way that nature is, the nature of nature itself, that um, invites an understanding of God that is always participating with creation and always inviting, uh, the penentheists would call it luring, process theologians would mm-hmm. call it luring creation to um, participate in and with the spirit of God in a way that um, could have, could change the fabric of the world itself, could change, could change the sort of the natural world itself because all, as James K. Smith Smith would say, um, um, like all nature is like always already suspended in the spirit.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And so, so those, um, frameworks are, are trying to offer us, like you say, a thicker or a, a richer way of understanding that kind of participation or collaboration or whatever language we might want to give to that whereby mm-hmm. God could still be seen as dynamic and responsive but yeah. without that having to come from outside the system somehow
1: mm-hmm. or
0: in a controlling or overpowering or interventionist way, right? Right, right, right. Um, if we come back to that, the the conversation around dualism, even in relation to to our mm-hmm. own sense of what it is to be human, mm-hmm. um, how do you make sense of that? That conversation around what it is to be human—the the soul conversation, the consciousness, the thing that's perhaps yeah. still a bit inexplicable from a scientific perspective—around um, mm-hmm. what it, what human consciousness is itself.
1: Right. Yeah. Right. Right. So I would describe myself as a um, Christian physicalist, um, but not in. Many of the ways that are often um, caricatured in the discussion around this, and also I can explain what some of these terms mean. Sort of um, um, the so one one very common understanding of of the human person that a lot of Christians still hold on to is is dualism, right? So we have a soul and a body. Mm. Um, that is not the only option on offer in, in church history. Uh, it is a particularly um, a uh, popular one today and has been for you know hundreds of years particularly since the enlightenment but um it is certainly not the only one on offer um uh those who come from the roman catholic tradition who are who are steeped in um, thomas aquinas might be familiar with what we call hylomorphism, which is sort of this understanding that the mind and the body the soul and the body are essentially <clears throat> an indivisible unit that at all times and places um the um the 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 human is a is a true synthesis of the of the of the mind and body, um, and that the soul is essentially the form of the body. The soul is the form of the body, um, and so that is a very that's a long tradition within Christian history, um, and and um, so 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 dualism historically is not is not the only option on offer. So I always say that so that people know that when we offer alternatives to dualism, we're not doing something inherently heretical. We're not doing something that is has no basis in Mm -hmm. Christian thought. Um so um so for me personally, um I I have arrived at a a a position that is rather unafraid theologically of um just sort of naming and accepting the physical, um, the physicality of the human person, right? But I always say this with the caveat that my understanding of what it means to be physical is not a reductionist physicality and it's also not a um, it's not a physicality that is devoid of God. So, so, so it's so, so. So those are two things there. So first, I have uh, I would be I, w- I I would have a uh, I would hold to a physicalism that is perfectly happy to say that yes, everything that I am is essentially physical in nature, um, but the way that I would define that physicality would not be a reductionist physicalism that many would be, that many would associate with sort of uh, Francis Crick's um, description of the human person as being nothing but a pack of neurons, right? Right. So I'm not ever going to say that I am nothing but a pack of neurons. Mm -hmm. It's much more that I recognize that, um, or I think that like based on our engagement with the various sciences, um, the, the sort of almost inevitable conclusion is that for me to be me, is to be an immensely complex system of physical systems that is my human body, um, including my brain, but not only my brain. Mm. It's including all the millions of neurons that are in my gut, in my, my physical, my, my emotions, my um, 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 sort of the physical sensations that I have. And it's, in, it's, it's about that incredibly complex system of systems that is my human body being constantly engaged in an environment that is very rich and complex so it's like a working human brain in a Complex human body, constantly engaged in a complex environment, including um, uh, constant um, engagement with other subjects, so other humans, language, um, physical sensations, the physical environment around me, culture. It's a very complex physical kind of um, um, world that we live in. Um, and so I'm never going to be one that says that that physicality itself can be um nothing but the physical world i think that's a, that's a, that's where we that's where we've lost the game if we say that oh you're nothing but your physical body you don't have an appropriate understanding of how amazing it is to be physical what right. matter itself is the crazy complex processes that we would call physical processes. Um, so that's that's one part of it. But the other half of that is that my, um, my sort of ontology, is so sort of the way that I see what the physical world is, is not a world that I see has to be divorced from God in any way. And so um, the, sort of the theological fallacy that I always want to sort of name and point out is that many Christians have a sort of Metaphysical vision in which you have over on one side, you have a physical world, and then over on the other side, you have God. And the constant trick is to try and get God into the physical world right. in one way or another. Yeah. You're trying to sneak God in through the back door of like quantum mechanics or the human soul or something. And um, I think that is a theologically weak depiction mm. of, of, of of the natural world. If you take a route, which also has uh, a firm, firm grounding in theological history, if you take a route where you affirm that... That, that that nature itself never exists, is does not exist by default outside the presence and activity of God, then a lot of your problems with the nature of like what it means to be human just kind of disappear because God is never divorced from physical processes in the first place. You never have physical processes existing on their own apart from God's presence and activity in the first place. Um, and so what happens is that many Christians are operating essentially with a sort of quasi-deism, a sort of um, depiction of the natural world where the default is for nature to not be involved with God. Mm. And so it's in that context where nature is divorced from God, that we feel the need to elevate the human mind or soul above that physicality to be a meeting point with God. But if the, enti- if the entire world is already involved with God in the first place, then the necessity of the mind being immaterial or the soul being immaterial is not such a necessity. So, right. so the two is a two pronged thing for me. It's partly that I think the scientific evidence or the scientific depiction of the human person doesn't really allow for a substance dualism. Um, but neither is it re- substance dualism re- required theologically. You have a lot of theologians today that want to have um, they want a position between physicalism and dualism. And so they, there are really complex ways to describe how the human person is. Involved with the brain, or the human mind is involved with the brain, but somehow more than the brain. And I'm friendly to those positions, but I also am much more comfortable than most theologians probably. Was just saying, no, we are physical beings, and that's not threatening.
0: Yeah, it's interesting that that for many people, whether they are theologians officially or just um, you know folk theologians on, on just on the street working it out, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. that this this kind of. Um, need to elevate ourselves above this purely physical thing because of the if we're only physical, right? That that kind of way of thinking, then that in some way diminishes either us as human creatures or our or our ability to relate to or engage with God. That that hits home as well in, in the evolution conversation for for people, right? So uh when when I have the evolution conversation with students or or with people the the thing that seems to hit home the most is it, this: this conversation makes me feel less um, something. It makes me feel less mm-hmm. special, less spiritual, less like I am beyond the rest of this natural world. Yeah. And that can be deeply yep. unsettling and, and kind of troubling for people. And, yep. and then, if if I'm only physical, then how can I relate to God in a special way? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And and mm-hmm. I think that's that's a question that that comes up for people as they kind of process through that way of thinking.
1: Yep, absolutely.
0: Mm. Yep. Um, if if it's plausible to say that um, God is involved in the world, mm-hmm. God um, is present in, in and through uh, the physical world, mm-hmm. are we saying anything um i guess more uh, in a in a real lived experience kind of way than simply the natural processes play themselves out as they do are we just simply giving a, a layer of, of of meaning to that story you know we live in this physical world where physical things happen and physical processes and, and laws mm-hmm. play out as they do but as mm-hmm. christians we want to just say that god is upholding all of that in present right. does does that make any kind of tangible difference do you think in yeah. terms of how we actually experience reality uh, itself
1: right 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 yeah so no this is a really important question so are you actually saying something meaningful or are you just saying that you have chosen to adopt a theological lens to view the natural world right. through yeah and um so obviously that yeah so that, that that option does not feel appealing for a lot of people like mm. you want to actually have a god who's engaged with the world you want to actually be involved in something more than 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 like what we call just the physical world and yeah so i mean the first thing is like I, again i would want to say it's never just the physical world it's yeah. never just the natural world like by um and this is actually really it's really hard to get out of this framework mm. um like the now if you so I, I lean towards a panentheism all right so panentheism is, is this idea that Um, It's a a, a metaphysic. It's a a depiction of the relationship between God and the world, where all the natural world exists within God in some way, but God is more than the world. So it's not pantheism. It's not saying that God is the world. It's saying that the entire natural world exists within God in some way. That in some way, admittedly, is extremely difficult to parse out (laughs) and and, and flesh out. Um, And people try all the time, and they always things human language fails. But, um, but but it is an affirmation that the entire natural world, the created world, exists within God in some way, um, but God is more than the world. And if you really can inhabit that perspective in a deep way, um, it becomes much easier to actually experience the world around you as always being within God in some way and admitting of a sort of dynamism, a dynamic dynamic. Mm-hmm um relationship with the being that you are in already, right? Right. So it's it's both a recognition, um it's both a recognition that you are already within God. So it's like you are already existing within God in some way. But you also have agency. And so there's also a dynamism to that relationship with God where you can participate and understand and experience more of God, more of the full nature of nature. by acting in particular ways, exposing yourself to certain experiences. So this is actually another big part of my work is that I talk about, um, I explore different ways of humans engaging with what we call spiritual technologies. So kind of ground up ways of um, experiencing God more fully of, of, of um, creating, curating the sorts of experiences that give us deeper access to To the nature of what already is, to the theological realities that already are, um, so it's not in, it's not asking God to do something that isn't already there. It's more about um, going deeper into an experience of that reality and exposing the rest of creation in various ways to that same deeper reality.
0: Right. So, if we think about those those spiritual technologies a, a little more, just just for a moment, um, if if we're able to. Um move away from the the God is out there yeah. over there somewhere and essentially my my task is to somehow convince some kind of intervention or interaction mm-hmm. um to a to a god who is present these then then ways of um curating our own spirituality can become available to us in
1: mm-hmm.
0: in ways that don't suggest we're just sort of Duping ourselves mm. or manipulating right. manipulating ourselves into an into an experience, but mm-hmm. is there a way in which those? Could you give a couple of examples, perhaps, of of, of a way of thinking about spiritual technology that that would help us sure. do that?
1: Yeah, sure, sure. Um, so um, the, the the easy ones, the low hanging fruit, as it were, uh, would be what we call um, spiritual discipline. So the sorts of um, the sorts of uh, embodied activities that Christians have engaged in, actually religious people in general have engaged in throughout human history um, and um, considered to be integral like like vital for the development of any sort of meaningful faith life. things like prayer, meditation in some religions, it's dance, chant, um, fasting, what we would call smells and bells to sort of like mm-hmm. incense and just sort of anything sensory that aids, that lends itself to a, um, a, a, a sort of integrated complex experience. Um, these are things that the churches have always sanctioned and religions have always sanctioned as being part and parcel of what it means to engage in religious activity. Um, in fact, if anything, if the, 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 the remarkable fallacy um, of contemporary times is that you would ever be able to experience God as like, true or real without using embodied spiritual technologies. Right. Like it's this idea that you can cognitively experience, get your way to the truth of God without engaging your body in a meaningful way. Mm-hmm. That's new. That's really <laughs> new. And it's not, it's not, it's, it's a, it's a sort of, yeah, it's a cognitive policy that um, our cognitive emphasis that, that just is completely divorced from like all of human history and Christian tradition. Um, and then um, I'm actually, because of my ontology of how of major itself, I am actually um I, I I don't I don't put strict boundaries or strict um, fences around what we, we call consider to be legitimate spiritual technologies um, so um, recently I've been doing a lot of work um, in the area of um, uh, psychedelic research um, so it's uh, the, the there's been a recent resurgence in the last 10 20 years um, in, in research into psychedelics and what um, appropriate use of um uh, psychoactive substances um, can tell us about how the human mind engages with ultimate reality. And we're discovering fascinating things and um, it raises some really important theological questions. So like mm. could, could um, um, responsible use of psilocybin or LSD ever be considered a, a legitimate spiritual technology? I'm somebody who thinks that yes, it is. It's not essentially all that different uh, neurologically from what happens in meditation uh practitioners um and 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 sort of like various mystical states more broadly um, and, but it raises tons of really challenging questions um involving what is legitimate and not legitimate um in terms of spiritual technologies um, and 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 so i think that's actually one of the more interesting frontiers in theology at the moment is looking into that so what is available to us as humans like if we embrace the physicality and the naturalization of not only the human person but all of nature Um, and we recognize that there's something truly spirit infused, God infused about, about the natural world itself, then what sort of, um, what sorts of options become available to us? Um, yeah, so there's a fascinating theological questions and, and I'm not one to want to put, to prematurely put, um, uh, fences and walls around what we would consider seriously.
0: Sure. That's interesting. Um, and I guess those conversations in, in a sense become possible because if you if you take away again that kind of um, that dualism, that sense that that mm-hmm. I'm able to have or am seeking some kind of direct um, experience with with otherness through some mm-hmm. kind of um, supernatural um, mm-hmm. moment where I have this immediacy with with God, that actually all of my experiences of God are in some way. Um, mm-hmm. Had through some kind of practice, right? Then, then that can mm-hmm. open up the the doors to a whole conversation about what are the the options available to us in terms of those practices. I mean, I even think you know, um, I'm not sure now how you think about your your kind of more charismatic experiences, and 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 as an early teen, in light of some of the research you're doing now, I find it an interesting experience to to even reflect back on some of those some of those mm-hmm. Pentecostal experiences, right? Where yep um the music the mm-hmm. um the standing um with hands raised for an extended period mm-hmm. of time it was lighting yep. and with someone mm-hmm. saying repeated lines over and over you know like all, yep. all of those things in, in a sense were curating mm-hmm. my experience right mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. now that's
1: exactly
0: it right and and so the the order of or or the the difference between that and let's say a, a um, experimenting with some of those doses of psychedelics, for example, mm-hmm. there's actually not other than the kind of um, loading of of taboo. There's not mm-hmm. actually a, a significant order of magnitude difference between between what's going on Sadly in those right. two different spaces, yep. right? Um, how yeah. do how do we avoid the um, the way we we might see those things then being manipulative or taking us yep. into experiences that are not yep. engaging with the divine, are we able to, um, differentiate between that in this kind of way of thinking or? Yeah, yeah, What's,
1: I love it. Yeah. So this is always the first question, right? So right. anytime you talk about, um, curating spiritual experiences or psychedelics, um, or even just embracing, um, what I call spiritual technologies, curating uses, the use of spiritual technologies, um, the first question that always comes up is the manipulation question. Right. Are we not just brainwashing ourselves? Is this not dangerous? Is this just not? Is this is is this not just manipulation? So the first thing to to, to note is that um, with that definition of manipulation, like so engaging. Bodily with the sensory world, um, you are manipulating yourself every single day. Right, every absolutely. single day. You every time you leave your house, you are exposing yourself to manipulation in one form or another. Mm. Every time you go to a movie theater, um, a concert, every time you go to a sports game, and, and and find your emotion raised in yourself, like cheering on a team or crying when your favorite team loses, um, crying in a reading a, a beautiful poem or. Feeling your heart race when you're reading a novel. These are all forms of um, embodied experiences that manipulate you. Mm. And so you don't have a choice. You don't have a choice. If you're if you're alive and and, and, and walking around the world um, or just engaging with the world at all, you are exposing yourself to things outside of you that will change you. Our brains are plastic. Our 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 human experience is constantly in a dynamic relationship with our environment. We do not have a choice about whether or not we are being changed in one way or another. The question then becomes, how will we allow ourselves to be changed? What are the sorts of things that we want to expose ourselves to? What is the content associated with the physical and, and, and embodied experience that we want to um, examine? And so I think about this a lot with a sort of particularly con- conservative Pentecostal environment that I was involved in for, for, for years, actually, and... Um, This is, um, I am quite happy to say that, um, those particular churches, um, but we just know this just by looking at missiology is basically just looking at the growth of churches around the world in general. We know that the churches that are are growing the fastest and are not in decline, or at least are declining at the slowest rate (laughs) (laughs) are the ones, are the ones, are the ones that offer, um, intense, immersive embodied experiences. Um, the worst thing that Christianity has ever done for, um, like theologically has been to um, strip the um, affective dimension of worship away mm. from progressive theology, for example. Right. Um, I'm constantly on a, uh, on a quest to, 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 to understand um how, uh, more liberal progressive theology, uh, might be wed with more immersive practices. Um, it's, it's, I think one of the, it's one of the atrocious kind of realities of, of liberal, um, Protestantism. I think that, um, we, we, we have these like mainline worship services, um, that are essentially devoid of all of the embodied affective experiences that humans evolved with, um, right. and that would have been part and parcel of the evolution of religion itself. And so, if anything, it's a real shame that we that that what we'd call like good theology has moved away from from the sort of embodied um, roots that led to it in the first place. Um, and when you look throughout church history, what you see is that religions have been hundreds of years uh, in advance of the scientists and understanding how to finely tune um, worship practices and behaviors and experiences uh, and religious rites and and, and, um, ceremonies um, without knowing the brain science of it. Um, you have religions understanding that you need to have momentous ceremonial rites of passage when, it's, when a kid is a teenager mm. you know like mm. that's actually something that's like that, that 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 performs an incredibly important emotional psychological function and tends to root a young person into the religious um, tradition that they are growing up in um, we see even like i'm in, I'm in scotland and um, the church of scotland even, even for, for its entire history, even when uh, during periods when there were very few instruments involved in their worship, they've always had like a very robust um, tradition of hymn singing, rhythmic kind of rhythmic. Um, uh, sort, of, sort of forceful dynamic hymns that would be sung in unison and in harmony, um, that would create extremely, uh, impactful experiences for people involved. And, um, you know, you can go across the world traditions and, and, and recognize them. So the question is not whether or not we're manipulating ourselves. Yes, we are all technically exposing ourselves to being altered in some way or another mm. every day. Mm. Um, the question is one of, how you want to responsibly use what we know to be true about our bodies and about our experiences of the world to, um, to, to sort of further develop and probe the theological understanding that your mind is bringing to the picture, that your, that your tradition is bringing to the picture. It's about using the tools available to um, work with the c- cognitive content and just recognizing that you are not a being that can ever be divorced from your embodied experience of the world.
0: Right in, in that sense, then our, our theological conversations become deeply important to us mm-hmm. in shaping um, what matters and uh, mm-hmm. shaping how we think about our ethics, how we think about uh, the values upon which we might want to construct our lives yep. and, and build our lives, yep. the kind of relationships we want to build that then that conversation is is a necessary component then to go alongside the sense of of embodied yeah. practice. Um, yeah. To help us make sense of are those embodied practices, in yeah. fact, helping us tune in to um, mm-hmm. the kind of way of being in the world that, that our tradition, that our theological frameworks want to invite us or draw us into.
1: right? Exactly, exactly. And it's not actually, I mean, it's it's... It's um, another critique of sort of uh, talking about the curation of spiritual practices or ex- spiritual experience, right? Um, mm. Or um, this comes up a lot in talk about use of psychedelics as well. Theological kind of embrace of psychedelics. Um, one of the questions that always comes up is like, well, isn't this just inherently a self-serving, um, a self-serving sort of uh, move where you're just wanting to have like a good emotion about right. God? And um, I think that's actually really not true. Um, and so one of the one of the one of the key conversations I think that this um, this sort of conversation is relevant to is uh, the conversation around our ecological crisis. So the climate crisis at the moment. Um, we it is just the, a fact that we live in a sort of Western world where um, our our we do not experience a, a, a deep and intimate connection with nature. Right? We don't. We we see ourselves as fundamentally other than nature. Mm and as fundamentally um distinct from and divorced from over in some way um the physical world that we are basically destroying, right? So there are serious ethical and ecological considerations um that it is that 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 we recognize are important, like cognitively, we get it. But we don't feel emotionally, like, relationally connected to that natural world in the same way that our ancestors would have. Mm. Um, And one of the fascinating parts about um, aspects of, like, psychedelic research in particular, or mystical experiences as well, Mm -hmm. is that they are often accompanied by a sense of, like, oneness, like, relational intimacy with the natural world. Not in a way that, again, that's pantheistic or that sort of suggests that we are like one with the trees or something, it's not quite that. It's more of like a relational love, like a true like emotional engagement with the natural world that merges with our cognitive content. Right. And then allows a, a, a certain thing, certain things, once you've experienced this sort of emotional relational engagement with the physical world, um, certain actions become incomprehensible to you because you truly you, you just see the natural world in a diff- different way, right? So it's it, there's a real, there's a potential for um, for human engagement with the natural world to alter our practices and in, in our habits and our sort of consumeristic kind of impulses surrounding the natural world um, through kind of personal engagement and personal transformation in our understanding of what it means to be connected to the natural world. So, so there can be a really... Um, transformative role, I think for some of these spiritual technologies in conversations outside of just whether or not I'm experiencing God. And so there are real like ethical kind of considerations, um, to, that can become extremely important in this conversation as well. So I just always want to move away from thinking, oh, it's just about me and my buddy, Jesus. You know, yeah. it's not, it's really not about that. This, this, this sort of um, the embodied experience of, um, of, of God in the natural world um, can have massive external impact.
0: Yeah. It's interesting that kind of um, the, again, the swing that tends to happen, even, even politically, but happens religiously as well, between either um, personal transformation as this individual experience or mm-hmm. I'm seeking to change the systems and structures out there exactly. somewhere. Um, exactly. And it seems to me that both of those, both the ends of the spectrum run into their own inevitable mm-hmm. problems. Um, mm-hmm. And that this kind of conversation is, is offering us different ways of thinking about how we navigate. Yeah. The relationship between personal and communal and social transformation mm-hmm. and, and where those things might... Uh, deeply re- relate to one another, even in you know some of the research that that I've done talking with um, people who had an experience of God that's deeply personal to them, and they mm-hmm. would say uh, transformative. But the mm-hmm. resultant implications in terms of how they have restructured their um, their trajectory of life, the way they think about their so, in particular, in relation to. Um, say Māori who I interviewed who'd had these particular experiences mm-hmm. of the spirit that they felt affirmed their own ethnic and cultural identity in these deeply profound mm-hmm. ways. This was not mm-hmm. simply a personal one on one, I had this I right. had this amazing moment with the Lord. Mm-hmm. Um but mm-hmm. reshaped the way they thought about not only their mm-hmm. own identity but but what it meant to be to be to be Māori, what it meant to, to live in New Zealand, what it meant to be Christian at the intersection of all of those things, and how that might play yep. out in the way that they relate to others. So, exactly um, that helps, I think, to take us away from the. It's, yes, it's either this individual personal thing, or it's or it's right. the big wider cosmic right story, you know.
1: Yep, exactly.
0: Yeah. Um, how do you think now about your? If, if I can ask the personal question, which is to mm. go back and think about some of those experiences perhaps that you did have, um, mm. uh, how how do you make some sense of those now? Especially, uh, and I'm mm. thinking perhaps even for, for those for whom some of those experiences perhaps contain, do contain negative connotations mm-hmm. in their, in, oh, yeah. in their history, right? So they've had mm. these experiences which perhaps felt potent at the time but have become mm-hmm. quite... Um, mm-hmm. clouded with all sorts of other negative layers of, of trauma and, oh, yeah. and so on. Um, exactly. How do we yep. how do we kind of negotiate making some sense of that? Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, again, I, I'm probably an outlier in the, the- theological world um, insofar as I'm actually quite happy to admit that I am not someone who has ever found, including today, even now, um, I am not someone who has ever found um, faith to be easy. Um, it continues to be like a struggle for me to affirm um um the sort of like basic tenets of of a belief system, yeah. even that um that uh feel experientially true to me. so I'm I mean yes, I operate within the, the world of Christian theology, but it is um uh I still I still very much feel like I am like a, 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 like a work in progress. I'm very much looking for something that I don't yet fully feel comfortable saying I have mm. certainty of. Um, and so I, um, I was just having, I was having a conversation with a group of really interesting, um, naturalists, um, recently, and I described myself, we were asked to describe ourselves and I described myself as, um, an unhappy religious naturalist. Right. (laughs) So it's like, it's like, I, I, I find myself at that dividing line between a religious naturalist. So basically somebody that would affirm a religious dimensions to the natural world without being like affirmative of like, a. A sort of traditional Christian God. Yeah. Um, and so I find myself at, uh, at the juncture of that kind of religious naturalism, even an ecstatic naturalism, um, that emphasizes like the, the experiential qualities, um, and, and, and what we would call theism, right? Mm. So, so a personal theism where you have like a God who is a like a personal being in some way that knows you, loves you, that kind of thing. Um, So I do find myself at at that borderline. And um, what you have is many people at that borderline um, don't stay there for very long. They either go into a religious nationalism that is atheistic in content, Mm -hmm. or they go further back into sort of like the tradition that they came out of and and, 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 um, uh, find a more... Traditional kind of expression of their faith, right? right? Um, uh, I'm still very much in that that gray zone, and I have been for years, actually. Mm. Um, and and I, yeah. So I, I, I exist in that space, and I, I don't. I, I mean, who knows? I don't know where that will lead me eventually. Um, I know that there will always be options for me that are off the table theologically. Um, I will never be a fundamentalist again. <laughs> I will never be. Um, I will never be properly evangelical again, except yeah. in the sense that I do. Um, affirm the relational dimensions of faith. Um, And and so when I look back at my early years, I can affirm that I was tapping into something. Uh, I can affirm that I was being lured, drawn towards something that was real and true. Um, But it was coming at me filtered through packages that were not only perhaps not theologically as sound as I would now want to have, but could actually be downright harmful. Mm. Um, and I, I, um, I have nothing but sympathy for those who could never see themselves in any sort of like explicit religious tradition because of the harm that those traditions have caused them. Um, And, uh, yeah, because I myself experienced that, um, Mm. in various ways, both not only, actually not only from, um, not only from religious individuals and communities that promoted harmful interpretations and practices, um, or scriptural interpretations and practices, but, but also even the content actually sometimes of, of the tradition, like there's, there's actually quite a bit within like the Christian scriptures, for example, that is, is, um, very difficult for me to affirm now Mm. you know it's hard for me to 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 sort of see in the in the christian bible um a god that i would want to love and worship sometimes and not all the time there's there are plenty of other you know there's a lot there's a lot going on in the the scriptures yeah a a a lot to hang on to um but um growing up in religious communities can be an extremely damaging thing. And in some ways, I think that people who have grown up within the church struggle more than their sort of atheist childhood counterparts who are able to kind of come to uh, a faith in a different, through a different, a different Avenue. Mm. Um, And yeah, so, I mean, I, I, I look back on my early years and I see that there was something going on there. I think that there was something embodied going on in my childhood that I'm very thankful for. Um, with I can affirm that without without needing to affirm the theological baggage, uh, the religious baggage that was associated with it.
0: Yeah, that's that's really helpful. Thank you. I think. Um, yeah. yeah, it's such a complex intersection, right? Of of yeah. um, of what's going on for us. Yeah, and and the layers of. Of, um of experience that are that are these these spiritual experiences that are layered with theological Frameworks that can be mm. problematic that can be layered with relationships that are problematic or mm. communities that are or communities that are this weird mixture of warm and loving and yeah. also marginalizing and and judging and you know um, mm. all of those things seem uh, are in a big boiling pot together for, for many yep. people and, and can be difficult to pass out and make some sense yep. of um, absolutely But I think the idea that perhaps there is, um, as you say, something going on there, you know, Mm -hmm. I I think that's sometimes all we can say. Um, and and maybe sometimes that's enough. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Um, well, thank you so much for this conversation. It's it's, It's been really interesting and I really, really appreciate you taking the time. Um, in lockdown, on the other side of the world.
1: <laughs> well, it's a welcome distraction oh, from good. all the other paper grading and Zoom calls, so
0: yes, very I, um, happy to do it. I thought we could use Skype for this because um, I use Zoom about 24 hours of the day for the rest yeah. of my time, so I thought, <laughs> let's just have a different logo on the screen for a change. Yeah,
1: exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, um,
0: okay. All right, thank you so much, Sarah.
1: My pleasure, thank you.
0: Okay, so that is uh, that was my interview with Sarah-Lane Ritchie. Uh, I'm sure you agree, lots in there to think about, chew on and consider. Um, so again, my thanks to her. Uh, thank you to Rhys Machel, who does uh, wonderful work making this podcast listenable to your ears. And uh, I look forward to bringing you in the next episode of In The Shift.